Okay, origins of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. For those of you who've had a chance to look at the paper, you'll see that uh, I really talk about what is a very interesting confluence of diverse interests in uh, 1996. If we go back to the five members that formed the core, the, the main impetus comes from China, no question about it. It's China that provides the prime moving uh, energy to bring this group together. China and Russia as the big powers, and then three of the five Central Asian republics. Uh, they were five states that were former uh, republics within the old USSR. Three of the five share, that share borders with uh, China, specifically, as you can see here, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and so what interest did they have in sitting down at the same table as I have them listed here? Uh, in the case of China, it was already experiencing uh, rapid economic growth under the reforms introduced by Deng Xiaoping. And as far as its um, uh, landward expansion was concerned, uh, you could see that it was uh, blocked largely by uh, frontier problems in that it had uh, long-standing border disputes primarily with Russia, but also with the uh, Central Asian states that it shared borders with. Uh, and of course, it also had uh, problems with the minorities that were out on those uh, western extremities, and most conspicuous, conspicuously with the Turkic groups uh, such as the Uyghurs. And so asking itself, how can we take care of this? It said, let's sit, see what we can do to sit down with these folks, negotiate the border problems, and let's also see what we can do to uh, uh, lay down the hammer on uh, the minority groups. Uh, in the case of Russia, middle 1990s, uh, it was already had its hands full with uh, watching NATO move eastward. Uh, worried about that. It had its hands full with problems in the North Caucasus, and then all of a sudden it sees uh, problems in uh, its uh, south, south, to the south, in the form of the Tajik Civil War and also with the Taliban. And noticing those problems, it says, oh my gosh, uh, in these Central Asian republics that have only a few years ago uh, been given their freedom, we see tremendous encroachment by old rivals such as Turkey. Turkey had moved very heavily into uh, Central Asia by that time, uh, by China, and by the United States. Uh, we would certainly like to do something about that. So between Islamic instability and encroachment by old traditional rivals, Russia is uh, welcoming uh, an invitation from China to say, how can we get involved again in Central Asia to try and stand off, stand against encroachment from these old rivals. The Central Asian states themselves, who were, uh, to put it mildly, economic basket cases, uh, and also interested in looking toward any alternative to reimposition of Russian hegemony, uh, are happy to talk to anybody who says, let's try and develop 
some kind of relationship politically, economically, diplomatically, and so they welcome an invitation from China to sit down and discuss the possibility of forming uh, an IGO or some, some sort of relationship and also are welcoming the idea of possibly settling old border disputes that they had. So 1996, it's easy to get these folks to sit down. They begin a series <coughs> of meetings uh, on these issues and they meet annually, rotating across the five capitals. The five capitals, the heads of state of these five countries meet annually and then various the foreign ministers or other groupings will meet uh, on an irregular basis in between the annual meetings that they have. And they wind up being rather productive across these issues that you see here. What I list are select agreements from these, what they come to be quickly known as the Shanghai Five between 1996 and 2000. Now, what I'm listing here on the top half of this slide, are they legible to folks all the way in the back? Kind of tiny. Let me, I'll, I'll try and go over them. What I've, what I've chosen, what I've listed out here are uh, not all of the agreements by any means because there's quite a few of them. But I have on the bullet points selected out the concrete actions that is beyond the many pronouncements of uh, simple promises of cooperation and goodwill. Not that promises of cooperation and goodwill are unimportant, quite the opposite. I do consider those important, but I've tried to concentrate on commitments that bear some kind of cost. Now, not necessarily a material cost, but at least some kind of cost and prestige or credibility for the individual countries or for the group. That is to say, they're making some kind of public pronouncement that if it's not kept, it's going to make the individual country that's making the commitment or making, make the group look foolish if the commitment is not kept. So that uh, among those bullet points, for those who can't, I'm sorry that I didn't make it a larger font. I, th I thought it would look bigger uh, than what it's come out to be. Settlement of border disputes, which is uh, really quite significant. If you consider the, uh, I mean, th think of the Russian-Chinese case to take one example. Those countries, as many of you know, uh, they fought wars over those borders. And Russia and China had tens of thousands of troops stationed on those borders through the mid-1990s. They had very significant Red Army and People's Liberation Army forces committed to those borders. Significant resources committed to patrolling those borders through the mid-1990s. Mid These border disputes got settled and in both cases, Russia and China immediately began redeploying those forces and, and recommitting military budget resources away from the Red Army and away from the PLA once those border disputes got settled. 
that's going to have consequences later on uh, for both countries, I mean, to their benefit. Uh, second bullet point, coordination of action on drug trade, selected other internal security issues. Third point, public criticism of India and Pakistan for nuclear testing and commitment to non-proliferation, uh, nuclear non-proliferation. Fourth bullet point, public criticism of NATO for intervention in Yugoslavia without uh, Security Council approval. And the last point, uh, this came at their last uh, summit as the Shanghai Five uh, when they met in uh, Dushanbe, uh, Tajikistan. Anti-terrorism center to share information, coordinate activities in suppression of separatism, extremism, and terrorism. I put those in quotations because those three specific words uh, are used those three specific words are importantly chosen and repeated as SCO down all the way to this day. Um, I chose, the, chose these also because all of them prefigure what prefigure items that are going to be found within the SCO charter only. Uh, a year later, when we get to the bottom half of the page, in June of 2001. Okay, and that's, these are items that uh, are in that charter, as I say, just a year later when they meet again in Shanghai. Uzbekistan is added there as the sixth member, and here we are ten years later, it is these six nations, the five that we saw before, now adding Uzbekistan, that are still to this day the only six members that are in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Stay tuned, we'll talk about expansion uh, toward the end of the talk. Uh, what happens in the, uh, in the charter? Uh, I'd like to emphasize what are the themes that are in the charter before I get to the bullet points. In fact, I probably won't dwell too much on the bullet points because you just heard them in the top half of the page. Nature of the organization. It has to do with the settlement of borders. <clears throat> Importantly, it has to do with non-interference in the affairs of fellow members. Non-interference in the affairs of fellow members. This is the sacred principle if we were talking Star Trek, we would, the phrase that we would use is, this is the prime directive. Okay. In fact, wasn't that a prime directive in Star Trek? Yeah. yeah. Which, which, in Star Trek, got violated every week, every episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, non-interference in the affairs of fellow members. Uh, another um, sacred principle is they are anti-terror, anti-extremism, uh, and uh, anti-separatism. Anti-separatism, anti-extremism, anti-terror. Uh, the Charter pledges support of the organization and its members to the UN Charter. I mentioned they admit Uzbekistan to membership, and, interestingly, the Charter declares the Central Asian member states, 
who now number four, four, four of the five uh, former Soviet Central Asian republics, declares those member states to be nuclear-free zone, and they establish a secretariat, interestingly, in Beijing, not Shanghai, but there it is. That's what the charter basically does. It does some other things, but that's, that's, those are the highlights, okay? All right, so now we've got it up and running. Uh, through 2004, we basically kind of deepen that. We're going to add some economic cooperation agreements, uh, polish up the uh, border agreements and things like that. All right. Now, let's go to what is a big turning point because up through 2004, this organization is still going to largely fly underneath the radar as far as the West is concerned. As far as relations with the West, uh, recall 2001 through 2004, uh, what's going on with the West and Central Asia is basically um, we have uh, the United States and NATO allies coming into Central Asia uh, largely because of Iran and, uh, sorry, Iraq and Afghanistan and establishing uh, what the uh, U.S. and NATO allies call the Northern Distribution Network, which is essentially a military network to supply efforts war efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan to uh, supply our forces there. So we have various uh, bases, uh, the most important of which are in Uzbekistan at uh, a base called Karshi Khanabad, uh, shorthand of which is K2, the base known as K2, and another important air base in uh, Kyrgyzstan uh, called Manas. And uh, meanwhile, at various uh, locations such as uh, Georgia and Ukraine, we have uh, color revolutions taking place. Uh, let's see, help me out. The orange revolution is taking place in Ukraine, and the rose revolution is taking place in Georgia. And then in very early, like February, March of 2005, the Tulip Revolution takes place in Kyrgyzstan. And with each of those lovely colors, the beads of sweat in Moscow and Beijing uh, are getting uh, richer and more numerous. So uh, then in May, of 2005, actually earlier in 2005, a silent protest begins in Uzbekistan. And this goes on for 100 days. Now Uzbekistan is the location of this K2 base, this big base. Uh, the leader of Uzbekistan, a uh, lovely fellow by the name of Islam Karimov, is sweating uh, even more heavily than folks in Moscow and Beijing. 
Uh, he's very familiar with these color revolutions, and he has these, these protesters who are doing nothing but uh, standing silently, angry about the fact that he has imprisoned uh, about two dozen businessmen whose offense is that they've been very prosperous, and Karimov cannot understand how they've gotten to be so prosperous, and he believes that their prosperity is some conspiratorial He doesn't understand how they became so prosperous, and he thinks it's something against him. Well, in May, things get out of hand. Uh, the protests uh, turn violent, and Karimov brings down the hammer in extremely ugly ways and just mows these protesters down. And uh, the West condemns Karimov for his very bloody actions. I mean, Karimov brings out the troops and just literally mows these people down. Uh, I'm sorry, Victoria, can you help me out with like what the uh, estimates of the number of dead in those riots? There's great contention, but it's many hundred. Several hundred people are just murdered, cold-blooded murder. And the West really condemns him for this. Well. This, of course, creates a breach between the United States uh, and Karimov, who's hosting this base. It's a very important base for the Northern Distribution Network. Um, the Russians and the Chinese, frankly, are delighted uh, that this breach has been created because they don't like the color revolutions. They don't like the United States bases. Uh, they're happy that Karimov is very nervous and upset with the Americans. The Chinese invite Karimov to Beijing. They give him, uh, they welcome him as great socialist brother. They give him a 21-gun salute. Uh, the Russians treat him uh, with similar fanfare, and they really kind of join arms. Well, this all happens to coincide with a summit meeting of the SCO coming in June. They're, they're almost always held in June. And so when the six heads of state come together in June, as it says in the paper, we don't know exactly who said what to whom, but we do know that immediately beforehand, Karimov has been fated in Moscow and Beijing, and they all come into uh, Astana, in Kazakhstan, who's hosting, they come together and they say, let's have a resolution that says the U.S. has to get out of Central Asia, and they pass it unanimously at the Astana summit. Uh, U.S. out of Central Asia now, immediately, and uh, so there it is, an SCO resolution telling the United States immediately get out of Central Asia. Uh, Karimov goes back to Tashkent and uh, invokes uh, the clause in the contract with the United States, you must get out in 180 days. So the U.S. begins packing its bags. And that, let us say, rather soured relations between the United States and the SCO. Uh, they did not stop there, because at the very same summit, the United States and Iran, as it happened, had applied for observer status. Yes. 
So the SCO said to Iran, yes, you can have observer status, and told the United States, no, you may not have observer status. Oh, <laughs> thank you very much. They didn't stop there. Uh, that autumn, uh, the SCO had begun to hold military practice exercises for anti-terror kinds of operations, they said. Uh, they called them Peace Mission 2003, Peace Mission 2004. Peace Mission 2005, they held that autumn, and it was the first time that Chinese and Russian forces coordinated their efforts. And the United States said, may we observe these maneuvers. They said, no, you may not. But then they invited members of the U.S. press to observe, and they configured them in a way to look like it would be a, an amphibious exercise landing in Taiwan. <laughs> so it was like, what else can we do to piss them off, you know? <laughs> so 2005 was a very bad year for uh, U.S. SCO relations. This is the point at which you start seeing in the American press, is SCO the anti-NATO? This is when, in the Congress, we start getting hearings to the effect, is the SCO the anti-NATO? I don't think that's unreasonable. In 2005, the SCO really did look like the anti-NATO. But in greater detail in the paper, you'll see why I say I don't really think that that is the case. Sorry, I fell behind on the slides. Uh, okay, the top half is what I just laid out for you. The bottom half of the slide, I'm saying, in the larger scheme of things, there's really nothing natural about anti-US or anti-Western in the SCO alignment. What happened after 2005? I think 2005 was kind of a momentary hissy fit that was created by uh, the great fear, largely in uh, Moscow and Beijing, regarding the color revolutions and Karimov's paranoia. Uh, all being kind of ugly planets in alignment uh, because what happened beginning, actually beginning, beginning weeks after that June summit in Astana, literally weeks, three weeks after that Astana summit, there were, you know, jets flying to Bishkek, for example, containing all the way up to Donald Rumsfeld to talk to Bakiev, the head of uh, Kyrgyzstan, to say, are you going to kick us out of Manas? And Bakiev said, not if you line my pockets, which the United States did. Uh, Bakiev managed to leverage that uh, SCO resolution into, uh, it was about a tenfold increase in the U.S. subsidy to uh, Kyrgyzstan for the Manas Air Base, and then everything was just totally jiggy with the uh, U.S. and Kyrgyzstan to keep the Manas base. And we, the United States has not had any kind of problem with uh, the uh, basing rights anywhere else in Central Asia. In fact, it was um, a very short period of time 
that uh, the Russians came to the U.S. and said, oh, you don't have the K-2 base anymore? We would be happy to give you uh, flyover rights and access to our trains. We'll carry the material that you need for your northern distribution network on our rail, Russian rail. So the United States has been paying millions to the Russians uh, for them to transport our stuff to Afghanistan because we don't have the K-2 base. So we substituted access to Uzbek uh, basing with Russian rail. Uh, we got out of the K-2 base in less than the six months that we had to, and as soon as K-2 was empty, the Chinese sidled up to Karimov and said, you've got an empty base here, can we fill it? And before Karimov could say yes, the Russians grabbed him by the neck and said, you're not going to let the Chinese in here, and Karimov said, oh, not if you say so. And so the Chinese and the Russians were at each other's you know, locked horns about K2, and K2 is still empty. So you have all these rivalries. That's, that's the natural state of things, is that the, the, the Central Asians are happy to continue playing with us. So are the Russians, so are the Chinese, and the rivalries that are internal is the natural state of affairs, in my view, okay? Not that they're gonna gang up against the United States. Uh, as far as you know, the, the, the situation that Iran got observer status, we didn't. Well, the SCO, since that 2005 date, has slowly but very steadily distanced itself from Iran every single meeting since 2005. As long as the current regime holds sway in Tehran, I there is no way Iran will get into the SCO. Uh, Iran, I think, in some future date, is likely to get into the SCO, but not with the current regime. Why would I think it will? Because economically it makes perfect sense for Iran to be in the SCO, but not with this regime. Reasons I go into in greater detail in the paper. Uh, ah, what else? Uh, I should also, it's, it, whoops, sorry. I should also mention uh, regarding internal workings of the SCO, the Georgian crisis of 2008. Uh, you'll well recall, 2008, uh, Abkhazia, South Ossetia break away from Georgia, Putin, sends in Russian forces, the world community all but unanimously condemns Russia for going into Georgia. Putin is under great fire. Uh, again, it happens, when he's under greatest fire, it happens to coincide with the usual time of an SCO summit. He believes he's going to find shelter there so as he goes off to, at, uh, that meeting was in Dushanbe, he believes he will find uh, shelter and succor there and uh, asks his SCO brethren, please back me up, give me a resolution, give me a statement uh, regarding Russian forces in Georgia. And they said, we sure will. Uh, they passed a five-nation unanimous resolution scathingly condemning Russian actions in Georgia, and I mean they body slammed Putin. 
So, again, that, that was as close as he got to unity. So, um, again, that was, uh, it, it was a statement that was applauded by the West and by Saakashvili. It is not, uh, it is not the anti-NATO in that regard. So, as the last bullet point, bilateral relations between the U.S. and the SCO member states have been good since 2005. There have been no further difficulties regarding U.S. bases in the region. In that regard, it just, you cannot say that the SCO is the, is the anti-NATO. So, go to the next slide. There is one way that I find interesting in which we could think of it as an alternative, not to NATO, because... It's never been uh, a military organization anyway. It's not an alliance. It's never been close to an alliance. China has always resisted making an alliance. And so that's yet another level at which it does not make sense to think of it as the anti-NATO. But as an alternative to Western-style IGOs, uh, now this is something worth thinking about. And so here's my third of the four points. Uh, the significance of this concept that has hatched within the SCO that they call the Shanghai spirit. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about their concept of the Shanghai spirit. Uh, any IGO worth its salt will develop organizational norms. And this is something which has evolved over the first decade of the SCO. Uh, it was formally unveiled at the 2006 Shanghai Summit, even though the, the ideas that are contained therein, uh, you can see them developing over time but they crystallize and are offered in a coherent format for the first time in 2006, and then they have been continued to evolve and be polished since then. I use the phrase here, an oppositional identity, uh, because they do. They have been crafted and they are stated uh, explicitly in opposition to uh, Western norms and ideals. Uh, some highlights. They explicitly reject hegemony or reject domination by a single state in favor, and this is a quotation, in favor of a harmonious world of equals, free to choose different forms of government and economy. They have never named the United States or any other single country, but they do often use language that stands in clear contrast to phrases that we would find within what we call the Washington Consensus or phrases that you would find in speeches by George W. Bush when he was putting forward what he called his freedom agenda. In other words, if you, if you were to read statements that were out under the heading freedom agenda, you can find phrases that are the negation of that. If you were to find, if you found phrases that come from the IMF or the World Bank in statements that are put out under Shanghai spirit, you can find phrases that are the negation of 
uh, IMF or World Bank kinds of statements. Uh, next bullet point is a direct quote from uh, Shanghai Spirit kind of statement. Models of social development should not be exported. Uh, once again, non-interference in the affairs of others is sacred to the Shanghai spirit. Uh, this next one is purely mine. I'd, I'd love them to come out with it, but uh, I'll offer it to them. Maybe they'll adopt it. Instead of R2P, uh, think of R2, mind your own business, R2, MYOB. Uh, so I say, in this more, to me, more interesting regard, the SCO may indeed be or become an Eastern alternative to Western IGOs. Uh, in the paper, I talk a bit about how it, thinking in, a, in, a, in Western IGOs, Western IGOs are often asking nations to surrender some aspect of sovereignty. I will uh, forfeit changing my uh, <coughs> currency unilaterally in order to join this currency union. I will forfeit changing my tariffs unilaterally in order to join this customs union. Okay, surrendering sovereignty in some way. Uh, whereas the SCO in their stated values are sovereignty preserving. Okay. So why are they trying to preserve sovereignty, I'm asking myself? Well, uh, in order for authoritarian regimes to hold on to their ability to uh, fend off outside interference, to uh, have outsiders impose their norms on them. How convenient. Uh, but as I say in the last bullet point, but isn't that exactly what people were accusing Great Britain of doing in the 19th century, or accusing the United States of doing in uh, in uh, the post-World War II world of just uh, conveniently preserving their ability to uh, work their will upon others. So, you know, how judgmental do we want to be? That was the last, the only thing I was trying to do in that last point. Uh, I don't know. I just, I wanted to, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to judge the Chinese any more harshly than uh, the Chinese or other members of the SCO any more harshly than people were judging the Brits in the 19th century or the U.S. in the 20th. Okay, so that's basically what the Shanghai Spirit is about. And it does stand, uh, as stated, quite consciously in opposition to Western norms of what an IGO is supposed to be about. And they do mean it to be um, just, what, just that, just that an alternative to uh, Western ideas of what an IGO should be. Um, okay, now, uh, fourth point, what about the future? Uh, they have very purposely resisted expanding membership. Several countries have uh, asked to join, Eurasian nations asked to join over the first 10 years most notably Iran. Iran has knocked on the door most often and most loudly. Uh, they have been thoroughly resisted uh, since their first attempt in 2005 when they did attain observer status. 
but the stiff arm has gotten stronger and stronger uh, with each passing year. Uh, in the appendix to the paper, uh, for those of you who have it, you can see those who have observer status. Uh, China has been most resistant to opening the organization up with the idea that, they, that they've said, and I think reasonably so, that they wanted the organization to develop its purpose and its objectives to some level of reasonable clarity before opening up its membership. At the most recent summit in June, they were to finally adopt criteria for uh, full membership, and that's what I have on this slide. There are seven, and the one here is the, I dub it the Iran need not apply because this one says to be a full member you should not be under any UN sanctions. So as long as Iran is under sanctions, forget about it. Uh, so I would say Iran under Ahmadinejad and probably the Mullahs need not apply. Should not be involved in armed conflict. Uh, the others are probably reasonably easy to pass. The significant one, the big significant one, is, is uh, India right now. And uh, the Russians in particular have been pushing very hard for, uh, to get India in. I think primarily because they can feel their, uh, the Russians feel their ability to balance against the Chinese is slipping. They would like another big power in there to balance against the Chinese. Uh, China is somewhat resistant to that. The quid pro quo has been for China to say, well, if India comes in, Pakistan also has observer status. Pakistan is our good friend. If India comes in, Pakistan should come in. Pakistan has its own set of problems. Uh, so that seems to remain in stalemate. Uh, the, the SCO website, frankly, I've been trying to find out, did India apply for membership? The last criterion here is to become a full member, you must send an official request to the chairman of the council of the SCO heads of state. Well, since June, this is now September, so for the last quarter year, I've been trying to find out, damn it, did India apply? Did they actually send in an application? Uh, so I checked the SCO website, current news of the SCO. Uh, SCO chairman, that would be Lithuanian health minister, but there's nothing one way or the other whether India applied or not. Uh, I think there are high schools in Wyoming that have more exciting websites than this. <laughs> it's really pathetic. Uh, so uh, as of 11 o'clock this morning, uh, with the help of uh, a State Department contact that Victoria knows, uh, he checked 
and, and was able to determine that India has not officially applied for SCO membership. They have sent a communication to the SCO uh, saying that they are interested in upgrading from their observer status, but that does not constitute an application. So they continue to dance around each other. Uh, clearly there are some diplomatic uh, machinations going on there. But if India does enter, uh, that would clearly, India-Pakistan enter, that would clearly increase the significance of the SCO to uh, quite a degree. Because if you think of uh, the economic size of those two nations already and where we're headed uh, in the years to come uh, and where Asia is headed, uh, it's a force to be reckoned with. So. Let me draw a line under this and what, what I think this means, with or without India. Uh, SCO and long-run interests uh, in Asia. <clears throat> Let's put India aside for the moment because it, it just it's too foggy to try and ascertain. Let's assume India is not part of the picture. What would I say? Uh, with the current six members, the interests of both major and minor powers within SCO militate against unifying U.S. or West unless the West undertakes actions to unify them. Okay? So there are certainly candidates on the presidential horizon that uh, I think could pull that off. <laughs> Barring that, I don't see uh, them unifying against the United States or the West. Maritime interests of China provide as many opportunities for cooperation with the United States as for competition, and the same is true for the Indian Navy, whether it joins the SCO or not. There I'm going, uh, I'm relying some on the, uh, the uh, Kaplan book, Monsoon, and the scholars that he himself relies on. Uh, I like that book, I'm a fan of that book. Central Asian states will likely welcome continued ties to the United States and the West economically and diplomatically, and even militarily in measured ways. They already do. And from everything I can see, we continue to do so. If the US position in Asia is limited, in my view, Russia is more likely to welcome it rather than to seek its elimination. Russia is already looking to India to help in balancing against China, therefore is likely to look for additional help as its position continues to erode in Asia. So my bottom line is the United States, though not a dominant power, can remain a major player capable of remaining engaged in Asia and securing reasonable objectives by playing the role of an offshore balancer. I do not see the SCO as a threat by any means to uh, U.S. interests in Asia. That's my bottom line. So I'm very interested to get reactions and questions. Ted. I have a lot of things to say, but let's ask two questions. Um, can you talk more about how much the SCO 
reproduces itself institutionally through um, annual meetings of interior ministers, defense ministers, military to military to military collaboration, foreign minister summits, and so forth, such that there's already a kind of collective identity being formed among SCO members. Um, in addition, in September of last year, SCO opened its own university in Tashkent. And I'd be very interested in knowing what kind of curriculum the SCO members could agree on. And I'd be very interested in seeing the theory of IR course in particular, A. And B, since Randy introduced it as someone who combines IP and security, I was surprised he didn't have more to say about the struggle for economic domination in Central Asia. And Russia and China are bitterly engaged in trying to uh, get control over Kazakh, Turkmenistan, and resources, including especially building natural gas and oil pipelines. Um, so isn't that the great game that's going on in Central Asia today? I know that uh, Russia, um, you know, also in the political economy realm, in Russia is repeatedly and increasingly talking of itself as the financial center of uh, Eurasia. Uh, they want, they expect more and more trade to be cleared in rubles. Um, they used to talk about the yuan and the ruble uh, back in 2008 and 9 when they thought that maybe the dollar could be knocked off the pedestal. But now they're increasingly leaving the yuan out and talking more about how you know more and more countries in Central Asia are using the ruble, and that uh, Moscow can, can, can become the Eurasian financial center, the Singapore of Eurasia. Sometimes they typify it. Um, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with point four that all of the, all, everything we're talking about here is just, it's going to be gone in 10 years because Russia is going to be, by all the theories I know in IR, realism, neorealism, balance of threat, liberal <coughs> peace, constructivism, Russia's going to be balancing with Europe and the United States against China. I mean, I don't, I don't see conventional IR theory, at least, I don't see any way out of it. So all this like idea of like Russian maneuvering the SEO to balance the United States, it's just it's just it's not even a footnote, it's a you know, fly spec on the strategic trend of relations. And there's I mean they're desperately looking for balancing partners. I mean the the, the daily anxiety in, in Russia is why do we keep arming China against ourselves? Because as we know, China is responsible for you know 20, 30 percent of Russian arms exports. Uh, and they're co-producing the most modern Russian weaponry because Russia can't afford to invest in the plant and equipment necessary for the serial production of their latest technological wonders. And you know they're pulling their hair out. Moscow realized that well, we are making billion, we're making eight billion dollars a year off of this, but we're creating, you know, we're making we'll never be able to balance against this country if we keep arming them. Mm -hmm. um, so we should talk about eight dollars. Yeah, exactly. They won't be able to sustain. So, so I think you're talking more about how. <coughs> Institutionally integrated SCO is, and then also about the political economy of it. Uh, I'd be uh, really happy to learn from you Ted, about uh, uh, meetings below the uh, heads of state level and the foreign minister level, because the stuff that I've been able to collect so far is really at those two levels. Uh, I do know that that they have regular meetings at, uh, like the health ministers in particular and the defense ministers, but I don't have much material on that as of yet. Uh, I know there's a fair amount of coordination at that level. The SCO University, you say it's in Tashkent? It opened September 2010. 2010. Yeah, I'd love to see stuff uh, of what they're doing there. Maybe we can get a Fulbright go teach there. <laughs> <laughs>
had up theory. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Great data. And on the <coughs> political economy, yes, a great rivalry. I know that one of the things that's it's kind of curious that uh, you know there've been several attempts to get off the ground on this kind of cooperation on the energy side, and it is a little curious to me that they have not made more progress on that than uh, than they have because they have. Uh, tremendous uh, resources on the supply side, and they've got now one of the world's biggest energy consumers on, uh, in, in, in the person of China. And uh, so plenty of motivation on both sides. Uh, and motivated uh, on the sales side and on the buyer's side. Plenty of activity too, plenty of investment, but not much happening within the organization itself. China's been very active, as you know, in terms of investing. They've got, they've got pipelines going, pipelines opening, uh, plenty of energy trade, but not much that I have found, not much that I've come across that has occurred within the auspices, uh, underneath the auspices of SCO itself. They talk about you know, the energy club, but that just seems to kind of move sideways and not get much traction that I can see. Um, and a lot of false starts in terms of bridging between economic cooperation organizations and uh, uh, SCO. The only thing that, that seems energized uh, are China's efforts to, to bridge to uh, ASEAN. But anything that is uh, where, where Russia is interested is like CIS or uh, uh, the economic organizations where Russia dominates, and then the Chinese go, nah, 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 we're not interested. So we don't understand why. Uh, yeah, would you talk a little bit more about the border thing between uh, China and uh, Russia, how that came about? And did any of the unemployed border guards find employment in the United States protecting against terrorists? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of, yeah, about the border guards, I don't know. It, uh, I used to talk to Governor Perry as to whether he'd want to hire them, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think that's kind of the Oh, yeah, the, where the threat really lies, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the key thing that, that I am aware of, though, is especially how the Chinese redeployed their resources away from PLA to PLA Navy. Yeah, uh, the whole thing's a really big deal, it strikes me. Yeah, uh, because... Uh, they manage it. I don't, I don't mean they, they redeployment, just solving that. Yeah, and, and, uh, and again, I haven't, I haven't come across sources, I haven't looked to, uh, really hard for any sources on this question, but but it really is an important question because, especially especially if the Chinese had this specifically in mind, uh, then I really have to say hats off to them because, in hindsight, they solved this problem, drew down on the PLA on the land forces, and then really began investing in the Navy. So if you look at, uh, and I'm going secondary, I've not, I've not done this in a primary sense, but looking at secondary sources, saying that if you look at the at Chinese uh, military shares, 
what was Army versus Navy in 1990 and what is Army versus Navy in 2010, Navy's got a much, much bigger slice of the pie now. And said so this source, the big reason is they don't have to worry about the border with Russia. And, it, you know, and here's why. Well, that's, that's obviously huge because they are now a non-trivial sea power and becoming more and more of a sea power all the time. Well, if that was, if that was part of their strategy, wow, that's awfully big. Randy. Um, as I was reading the paper, I just, Ted, I, I completely agree with Ted. Like, I was expecting more IP, the pipelines, natural yeah. gas ties to Indian Ocean. I think that's something you really could really develop it. But as I was reading, I thought, wow, this is such a good example of Paul Schrader's sort of alliances as tools of management back in a 1971 piece that he wrote about how alliances don't need to be just power aggregation uh, systems. They can also be tools of management with your rivals and sort of. And particularly, you look at the small states in Central Asia, they're getting a voice, they get to manage relations. That was the first thing. So I think you could add, I mean, I, such a good example of Schrader's tools of management. The other thing I thought was strategic hedging. Seems like a lot of this is just that. Like China is hedging. I mean, look, it's working with the US. It doesn't want the US to fail. We, we're on good terms with them, but they are hedging just as we are hedging, and this is part of that, an outgrowth of the strategic hedging policy. Same with the, the small states in Central Asia. They're hedging against Russia, China, but they're also having good relations with the US. It's just they're playing both sides of the fence because there's so much uncertainty on what is what are China's intentions going to be in the future. China's thinking what are the US intentions going to be. And then finally, when we look at the, the third part of your argument, the Shanghai spirit, to me, I think that you could relate to um, this notion of authoritarian capitalism rise of authoritarian capitalism. Um, is it, a, is it a, uh, an alternative worldview? And I, you know, that, that's the question. I don't really see it that way because, I mean, it, it's still working within a capitalist world system. I mean, they, they, they understand that, you know, they're part of this globalized system and they're not going to change it. All they're saying is, we really believe in Westphalian sovereignty or the myth of Westphalian sovereignty. We really think states should be hard-crusted, you know, impenetrable borders type, you know, billiard balls. And that's all they're really saying. But the, the long-term question is, is authoritarian capitalism an alternative model? Like some, like Kagan and Isaac Gott would say, oh, it's going to create a new Cold War. We'll have, except this time, our enemies won't be those weak communists who don't have an economy. They'll be the strong capitalists the size of China and Russia. Oh, my God. You know, I mean, we've always had authoritarian capitalism. The question is, you know, capitalism doesn't require dem democracy because obviously we had a thriving capitalist world system without democratic states. Mm -hmm. But over time, the question is, does capitalism, world capitalism, affect the internal development of the states within the system? And we tend to think that, yes, property rights, all those things, that perhaps authoritarian capitalism is just a stage on the path to ultimately a liberal democratic Society. So, you know, is it a world? I think that's the argument. Is it is it an alternative worldview or is it a stage in the development of? Mm -hmm. <coughs> so yeah, we, we can we can just be a great big Singapore. That, yeah. Yeah. You know, we can well, well that is the Singapore model. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
the uh, yeah, I mentioned that the the, the Libyan civil war has uh, split the Chinese foreign policy elite uh, on this question of non-interference in the affairs of others in uh, very interesting ways. Uh, if I can just briefly put this in front of you. Uh, and it's made the Chinese delegation of the UN, just one, one manifestation of it, it's made them schizophrenic over the last four or five months. Uh, I quickly kind of gathered up what their behavior has been over the last four months. And I, I've labeled them as China's multilateralists and China's nationalists. Uh, and what China's done vis-a-vis -vis Libya over the last four months or so. Uh, so that when the fighting broke out in Libya, there was already a, a fairly sizable contingent of the Chinese Navy off the coast of uh, Somalia uh, dealing with the pirates. There's a multinational force, as you folks probably know, dealing with the, the Somali pirates. Well, some number of uh, Chinese ships broke off from that pirate duty, uh, steamed through the Suez Canal, went into the Mediterranean. Uh, <coughs> which probably at least some of you know, is the first time in history that a Chinese warship has floated in the Mediterranean. So, what was that from, uh, from Mogadishu to the shores of Tripoli? So, <laughs> uh, uh, quickly in the Mediterranean, into Libyan waters, by which you sovereignty, uh, to protect 35,000 Chinese nationals. 35,000 Chinese nationals in Libya uh, when violence broke out. They uh, then, Chinese, they hired some private aircraft, but that also, there were actually Chinese aircraft that wound up landing in Libya, violating Libyan airspace, uh, evacuating Chinese and other nationals from Libya. Um, in the UN, voted in favor of UN sanctions against Gaddafi. But meanwhile, of course, before that, sorry, uh, the, they had, before Libya, they portrayed Arab Spring protesters as lawless troublemakers. Uh, I'm sure that you had heard that they had suppressed all references to the Jasmine Revolution. Uh, you probably also heard that uh, on the internet in China, even perfume sellers had, had Jasmine scents removed. Uh, jasmine, what are they called, uh, those, 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 those scent sticks, they were taken off. I mean, so they were just paranoid about Jasmine. That uh, was the nationalists. Uh, after, after voting in favor of UN sanctions, after that, in the UN, they condemned NATO airstrikes against the Qaddafi forces. This is the, 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 the schizophrenia of the UN delegation. Uh, but then they went multilateral again because when in the UN uh, the resolution came up, should uh, there use all necessary measures against Qaddafi, and it was known that voting for this would lead to a NATO-led military operation, uh, airstrikes and all, China abstained, okay? 
had the veto power but abstained. So they knew that would, lead to a NATO, uh, would lead to a NATO operation. So we're back on the multilateral side. Chinese officials ranking as high as Foreign Minister Yang Jiaxi met with uh, Libyan rebels multiple times, multiple times, at least four times. Uh, but they also met with Gaddafi representatives involving arms sales to Gaddafi representatives. Back and forth. Can you elaborate on what the 35,000 nationals were doing? Oh, uh, the business, and especially in the oil business. Yeah. So they were protected, that's what they're... Yeah, they're protecting uh, their business interests there. Yes, thank you. Uh, so it's you know, basically it's uh, the, the navy, which tends to be multinationally oriented, and it's the it's Chinese business interests, uh, which is my last point here. The business interests in general, energy companies in particular, remain very concerned that they're going to be frozen out of deals in post-Qaddafi Libya, because China was not an active participant on the winning side. So there's this idea there there are really significant elements within China that say this idea about non-interference. It does not wash. We, we're, we're grown-up people now. We're not kids anymore. But the nationalists are pulling their hair out. Now, very recently, as recently as the 6th of September, Chinese government issued a white paper, a statement of China's foreign policy. It's entitled, China's Peaceful Rise. This is a statement for the world to read. On Here is a statement regarding China's foreign policy, China's Peaceful Rise. And it glowingly reaffirms the principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of others. Here we are. This is still a sacred principle of China's foreign policy. And as of yesterday, China is the only member of the Security Council not to recognize the NPC as a legitimate government of Libya. So the only ones not to recognize the so-called rebels as the legitimate government of Libya. So. As I say, the Chinese foreign policy elite is really split on this question of, are they momentarily split? I don't know, but, but the Libyan case has really thrown them into a quandary. Yes? Where's your money on in the long run? I mean, that's, that's, that strikes me as a substance of Randy's question, right? Like, are the multilaterals going to win because they're tied into global capitalism that will empower them in the long run? Or are the nationalists able to marshal some kind of resources that will help them appear to others in China. That's the $64,000 question, uh, and it's, it's liberalism, mercantilism, I don't know, it's, uh, uh, you know, will, uh, as China grows to have greater and greater global responsibilities, uh, we now have, uh, you know, it's, it's domestic politics creating vested interests within China. Uh, domestic politics influencing foreign policy. Well, wait a second. Why would we live with accounts? I mean, the nationalists want access to oil and energy resources too. It's a yeah. question of tactics. I mean, are you are you more likely to get it by backing Gaddafi to the end, or are you more likely to get it by Hedging your bets, or you're more likely to get it by jumping feet first on, on behalf of the rebels. Yeah, okay, all right, yeah, of course, of course, of course, the nationalists want oil too. Uh, 
the nationalist who does principled neon files. <laughs> but the big principle is, is sovereignty, right? So that's what we, what else should be less important than that? Yes, sir. I think one uh, proper approach to explain this dynamic is because Chinese officials face multiple audiences. So for international audiences, for, for to, to build an image of responsible great powers, they want to recognize uh, the so-called opposition. For, for even for some national interest, mm -hmm. but for their domestic audiences, they don't want to show they are eager to support uh, a position group for their, I mean, mm -hmm. as a legitimate government. So there are a lot of debates in China on, on what's the national identity, what's the national goal. So maybe it's very useful to to bring those uh, diverse perspectives. The second question related to Randy's point. So uh, I completely agree with you that. Uh, SCO is not an anti-LATO uh, uh, miniature analysis, but in terms of uh, uh, international politics literature, is SCO a normal case in terms of analysis politics, or it's just a, a typical case? So originally, it probably was it was created to avoid loss, but as it evolved, it has some new purpose. It's uh, it occurs to me that recently it's. It's it's like a political balancing. It's try to uh, spread. Some, it's try to uh, try to emphasize in some kind of ideas that the Chinese government preferred. So it's like political organization. So is that a typical organization from a comparative perspective, or it's a very unique in your opinion? Mm, uh, I I would say that it is, it's similar to post-war organizations in that it reflects China's interests quite strongly the way that post-World War II organizations reflected U.S. interests quite strongly. So similar in that regard. Uh, the regime's literature from decades ago would say that uh, organizations will strongly tend to reflect the interests of the strong. Uh, typical in that regard. Not sure what else I might say. Alex. Well, actually, sort of on this point, I mean, to me, it looks like a lot of, sort of re regional organizations that are kind of catch-alls, they may start as economic integration agreement, and they add in something about political relationships, and they add in something about military exercises, or it starts as a small regional political organization, they start adding economic stuff, so they become these kind of hodgepodges, not highly institutionalized, um, sort of jack-of-all-trades regional organizations. It's, it's distinct in the sense that you have these huge great powers involved, it's not four or five African states or something like that. But in some ways, it, it would seem sort of typical of a, of a regional um, catch-all organization. Okay. But can I have the floor? Now? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, just one interpretation of the SCO that occurs to me is that you know, the United States has always had the advantage of having multiple sort of redundant IOs and it can just form shop in every issue area, security, 
trade, human rights. Um, and for China, China doesn't have that luxury, right? It has the UN. There are very few regional IOs in Asia. Asia is sort of known for that. So I guess when I when the SCO first got on my radar screen, which is partly because of you, that's what what occurred to me that like any mature superpower or rising yeah. superpower, China wants options and Russia too. Yeah. And this is one way to have another IO on the shelf they can turn to if they need it. They're under no ob obligation to work through the SEO in any particular issue or episode. Right. And yet it's there as an option if it's right. convenient. Right. So I like this idea of just great powers wanting multiple options. And this is just another IO in, in their toolkits that they didn't have before, mm -hmm. which is the luxury that the US and Europe has had since World War II. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Excuse me, but I when I was surveying, you know, uh, China and strategic hedging or whatever it's doing. It's, it's funny how the SEO really gets short shrift. Like, at least, I mean, maybe it's a Western perception or whatever, but and I don't know when it gets that feeling like the SEO, I think it's because of what Ted said, that most people feel like Russia is going to align with the West or with India and that it's going to be against China and that this thing is just a paper, you know? Is that the sense? Am I the one who's getting a sense? Like, I, I was just reading before I got here paper on China's foreign policy, and it only mentioned one sentence. It was about strategic hedging against the U.S., because I, I, that's what I was I, I read it thinking, let, let me see what they say about the SCO. It was one little sentence about it in like a 35-page article. So I thought, I don't know why it's not taken seriously, I guess. I want to follow up on that and, and ask you a question of what you think that the SCO has done as an institution for China that China couldn't have done double negative, I'll, I'll say that's not entirely unfair. Uh, there, I would say probably the uh, cooperation, the multilateral, really multilateral cooperation on uh, drugs and anti-terror, uh, anti-separatism and so forth, because there really has been a lot of information sharing on that. Now, I will not say that's entirely to the good because they've been extraordinarily uh, effective in suppressing uh, minority groups such as the Uyghurs and uh, if you are a uh, Turkic minority that's not exactly a great thing but they've been very effective at that. Um, the United States has actually cooperated in, uh, in, in some of that Settling with, uh, to what extent are settlement of border disputes uh, facilitated by a, in a multilateral framework as opposed to bilateral? Uh, 
uh, I'm not really sure. You know, is there is there some kind of momentum that uh, happens if if China is settling with uh, Kazakhstan and Tajikistan? Does that help in the settlement with uh, Russia, or vice versa? If they're settling with Russia, does that help them also settle with the Kazakhs and the Tajiks? Perhaps yes, or perhaps that's utterly an independent event. I don't really know. Uh, it may be easier to settle such border differences in a multilateral format than in a bilateral. Uh, I'd need to talk to people who are more expert in the settlement of border disputes, like uh, colleagues who've studied that. But it's, I'd say it's, it's not an unfair question to ask. Rick. Well, I just wanted to The border, it, it's settled, yes, it's settled on paper, but you know, in fact, uh, on the uh, China-Russia border, um, you know, Chinese have been pouring across that border into Siberia in uncontrolled ways, so that there are uh, tens of thousands of squatters, uh, Chinese squatters in, in Siberia, who are just filling those empty lands, because Russian population has been depopulating uh, eastern Siberia and uh, because China is heavily populated in those provinces in the northeast they've been going look at all that empty land over there let's just take it and they've been taking it they've just been taking it and Russia's not sure what to do they can't police it the Chinese are kind of whistling and looking the other way and uh, there, there's you know, something's going to happen there we don't know what, but uh, there's there's disputes in the future coming there, but I don't know when. All right. Well, yeah. I think we're running a little over. Yeah. So yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Thank